0: Well good morning everyone. Good morning. What a blessing to see all of you here this morning. Uh, I wanted to first, before we get started, to thank so many of you out there for your phone calls, your text messages and just your relentless prayers for my surgery and my recovery and thank you for that and praise the Lord. Uh, I think my recovery is coming along really well, so I'm happy to report that. Uh, Also, my name is Richard Fuller, and it is my uh, humble privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. So, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading this morning from Acts 2, and we're going to be again in verse 1 So on the day of Pentecost all the believers were meeting together in one place suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm and it filled the house where they were sitting And then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. And now let's jump up to verse 14. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles And he shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel, who said in the last days, God said that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And in those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, just so humbly come before you this morning. We thank you, Father, for meeting us here. We ask that you would fill this room and each of us individually, Father, this morning with your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to receive from your word what you have for each of us today. I pray that all that I say will be glorifying to you. Though, so, Father, we give you this time and we ask this In Jesus' name, amen. So, as Lauren just mentioned, two weeks from today, we will be celebrating Easter and Jesus' glorious resurrection. And I think it is a perfect time as we head into Palm Sunday next week to examine ourselves and where we are in our walk with Jesus. Now, we just finished a beautiful and blessed study on Psalm 23. And we might ask, who leads us beside the still waters? Who leads us in those paths of righteousness? Who goes before us in the valley of the shadow of death? And it is the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And as we just read in Acts 2, the first great outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred at Pentecost. Jesus had been resurrected, was now in heaven, and his promise to the apostles was fulfilled. As Jesus said in John 14, verse 15 to 17, he said, If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you and he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. And so then, as we read, Peter explained this phenomenon to the crowd that was present that day by quoting prophecy from the prophet Joel, who wrote, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. So let's begin this morning by considering who is the Holy Spirit, And I will be using some references from Pastor R.A. Torrey's book called The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Torrey says that the spirit is the outbreathing of God. It is his inmost life. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the innermost life of God himself to dwell in us in a personal way. When we really grasp this, it's overwhelming, isn't it? Just stop and think what it means to have the inmost life of God dwelling in a personal way in us. How solemn and yet unspeakably glorious life becomes when we realize this. All life in believers and in the church is the Holy Spirit's work. He is the spirit of the living God, and it is his work to make God a living God to us with whom we have a personal relationship to make God more real to us than the most intimate human friend that we have, a God upon whom we can depend on and to whom we can raise our voice in prayer who hears our prayers, and speaks back to us. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ in us. In Ephesians 13, he is called the Spirit of promise. In Romans 4, the Spirit of holiness. In Isaiah 4, the Spirit of judgment. In John 16, the spirit of truth. In Isaiah 2, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. In Romans 2, the spirit of life. In Hebrews 29, the spirit of grace. In John 26, the comforter. And in Isaiah 4, the spirit of burning. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is like a fire in the heart in which he dwells. And as fire tests and refines and illuminates and warms and energizes, so does the Holy Spirit. In writing about this subject in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven. And on earth, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. And then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, and then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Sadly, despite all these wonderful attributes, of the Holy Spirit that inhabits Christians when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Many Christians today have become consumed with worldly distractions. There are many in the church today who once knew the matchless joy of the Holy Spirit, but some sin or worldly conformity, some active disobedience to God has come in and a fountain of the Holy Spirit is choked and we need to throw off whatever is hindering the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and let this wondrous fountain burst forth. We need to surrender our every thought, our every purpose, our every desire and every affection to his absolute control and walk after The Spirit. Letting the Spirit take control and set us free from the power of sin that dwells in us and bring our whole lives into conformity to the will of God. We must live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. And the life of the Spirit within us must be maintained by the study of God's Word and prayer. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of God and the great need in individuals and churches today is that the wind of God blows upon us. Now many of you know that have been with Renew for from the beginning. We were founded a little over seven years ago and there were three primary pillars that our church was founded on. Number one was the inerrancy of the Bible Number two was the importance of relationship, fellowship, and unity in the body, and the third was to be a church that is like a river flowing out into the community and the world with the gospel, with the knowledge of God's truth and grace, but I can tell you this morning that in America over the past four years, this mission has been met with great resistance, by the prevailing culture in America. We are living in a culture that is spiraling downward morally. The word of God is often characterized as a collection of fables, the marriage covenant, as an antiquated institution, and heaven is referred to as a fairy tale. So as we enter deeper into the last days, Christians are pushed I think like never before to compromise their biblical values. Our culture has not only become me-centered, it has become mean-spirited, disrespectful, and you might say downright evil. Today, people seem to be outraged about meaningless things and quiet about the things that really matter. We seem to live in a society that has been turned upside down a society that calls evil good and good evil. For example, our government is actively persecuting the Christian community in various ways. A recent example, it's actually it's current, is a Christian adoption organization that the government is trying to force to hire non-believers in an attempt to change the focus of the adoption agency from placing babies in Christian homes to having to place them in homes <clears throat> excuse me, with gay and trans parents as well. I think I'm going to be drinking a lot of water this morning. I apologize for that. <clears throat> Another example is the pandemic lockdowns. You know, we could shop at Costco, at grocery stores, we could buy liquor and cigarettes, but we could not attend church. And you see, the government said churches were not an essential service in our society. So approximately 400,000 Christian churches were shuttered. And this is probably the greatest persecution ever put upon the church in America. Today, Christian books cannot be read at children's story hour in local libraries, but drag queen readings are cheerfully accepted. States like states like California are sanctuary states for aborting babies and for transmutilation surgeries on our youth. In the commandment, thou shalt not steal seems to have been replaced with thou shalt steal without consequence. And God created man and woman, but now we're told that there are 62 possible genders that you can select from. And isn't it appalling how our society celebrates the things that are an abomination to God? Yet, as Christians, it is necessary that we do not change in adherence to the culture. It has never been more important for Christian voices to be heard in the public square. And the more others desire to silence us, the more we must push back. The false truth seems to have a louder voice in society today. But this must change as our culture is in desperate need to hear God's truth. The antidote for a woke culture is the love of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, We cannot love God without hating that which he hates. We are not only to avoid evil and refuse to continue in it, but we must be up in arms against it and bear towards it a hearty indignation. So the state of our society today begs this question. In light of a challenging culture, how are we doing as a Christian community today? Well, the answer is not so good. Nearly a quarter way through the 21st century, the church is facing ominous challenges. Recent poll findings suggest it's not just unbelievers who are cool towards the Bible and its teaching, but also those who already identify as Christians. In a recent survey called LifeWay's Greatest Needs of Pastors Study, ask a thousand Protestant pastors to identify the primary people dynamic challenge that they face in their church and their overwhelming response, apathy, or lack of commitment. And that is the only challenge that more than half of all of these pastors identified. Now these were self-identified followers of Jesus Christ who are unfortunately apathetic to Christ's church. In the findings come, as Christian author J. Warner Wallace has argued that apathetic views on spirituality, particularly among millennials and Generation Z, pose a greater threat to Christianity than atheism. And interestingly, these are views that aren't specifically anti-Christian or anti-religion, but rather just ambivalent towards Christianity or religion in general. So what does apathy mean? Well, apathy is a state of not caring. The word is especially used to refer to a lack of interest or concern about things and it could also mean the absence or suppression of emotion. Dr. Anazor, who is a associate professor of theology at Biola University In his widely acclaimed book, Overcoming Apathy, he writes, we live in a culture plagued by apathy for too many people. Life feels like a show about nothing. It feels unworthy of our serious attention. Essentially, we are citizens of a Seinfeldian society where only inconsequential things matter. And the paradox of apathy is that we are captivated by the things we don't really care about, and we are lukewarm to the things that in our heart of hearts mean the most. We don't act on what we should act on, but we are awakened to things we should probably ignore. And another way to think about it is that we are very busy doing nothing. Apathy is not about being lazy. It's about having a misdirected life. It's a life that may be focused on work or TV or sports or video games or social media, but it is not directed towards God. And so the worldly passions in our life are set above the passion that we feel for God. And another writer says, our culture is a breeding ground for chronic apathy due to the proliferation of distractions available. Unfortunately, many Christians have lost that sense of meaning in their lives. They feel like they're floating from one event to another, one responsibility to the next, one task to another, but nothing feels cohesive. And there isn't one pure and holy passion that helps to just kind of to stitch together their lives. And this is why such things as prayer and reading the Bible can feel empty. Christians today seem to hover in the realm of the so-so. For example, among evangelicals, only 49% of people read at least a little bit of the Bible daily. And this number dips to 16% for non-evangelicals. And it seems that the apathy of the church is more likely just a mere image of the apathy within each individual member's heart. It's not a they problem, it's a me problem. And Jesus condemned the church of Laodicea for its apathy and its indifference toward him in Revelation three. Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot and I wish that you were cold or hot So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is a frightening verse for any apathetic Christian. Spurgeon said, talking about this, he said, often depression of spirit and great misery of soul are removed as soon as we quit our idols and bow ourselves to obedience before the living God. And we must do this with all our hearts and all our souls, and then our captivity will end. Dr. Anazor continues, he says, one way to think about apathy is that many people today, they just have a purposelessness or aimlessness in their lives. And I think as we know, the vibrancy of our spiritual lives has everything to do with what our minds are set upon We can become like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit by following him in the overall style of life that he chose for himself. Now, what did Jesus do? He prayed. He meditated on God's word. He fellowshiped with others. He regularly served others. And he had a heart for the lost John Piper said, regularly beating the drum of God's glory is the main goal of human life. And I think this is so true because passion for growth dies when there's no sense of purpose in our lives and apathy feeds on aimlessness. So how does apathy play out in our lives? Well, I haven't read my Bible in weeks. I'm struggling to pray. I'm not going to church very often. I'm not involved in activities with other Christians. And I've lost touch with most of my Christian friends. Essentially, I have allowed worldly distractions to become the master of my life. Now, we were all upset and discouraged. I mentioned lockdowns earlier when churches' doors were locked during the pandemic. And unfortunately, even after several years, there are still lingering negative impacts to the church. A lot of what, what I've been talking about the last 10 minutes is actually something that has emerged out of those times. Research has proven that COVID-19 chaos is partially responsible for inducing, inducing spiritual apathy among many professing Christians. And the major disruption of church attendance routines caused many believers to call and fall into what they called a sense of of apathetic stupor, a lack of concern for the things of God. And a report published by the American Enterprise Institute revealed that people who attended church infrequently or rarely prior to the pandemic have not returned to church at all. In the most precipitous drop-offs we're seeing among young people and unmarried adults. In most churches attendance today ranges above 50% of their pre-pandemic attendance, but below 90%. But a third of churches are still below 70% in their attendance. So a Christian who may have been focused on diligent personal prayer, Bible study, and Christian service prior to the pandemic might today feel totally numb toward Jesus. And he's not necessarily a lazy Christian. The survey indicated that before 19, he was most likely active in the spiritual disciplines and Christian service. But the rapid changes due to the lockdowns have dried up his concern for things that matter the most. He just finds himself not really caring anymore. And researchers agree that that was clearly a driver of apathy among Christians today. What this means is that by interrupting in-person church services brought on by the pandemic has accelerated church attendance decline. People are lonely. People are starved for connection. Yet for many, apathy feels like a shadow, a companion that they just can't shake. It goes wherever they go and it clouds our Christian lives. When the doors of almost every church in America were locked for months on end and God's people could not commune together in fellowship, in prayer, in worship, in his word, how many people for six months were not saved and maybe never were saved, because there was no one to save them. There was no place to go to hear about the love of Jesus. There was no place to go to feel the human touch of a hug and a smile and a kind and encouraging word. And we really cannot assess the overall damage that was done to the Christian community by the government's egregious actions. Yet we do know that there are Christians today who are discouraged. They're still in their pajamas this morning, their souls unsaved, faith diminished, not fellowshipping, and some churches financially ruined. And I pray that our houses of prayer will never again lock their doors and that the information I have shared this morning will help to energize us as a church to reach out to and connect with those who are struggling In their faith well God has something to say to you if you're discouraged this morning God says again looking at the prophet Joel in uh, Joel 2 verse 12 and 13 he said that is why the Lord says turn to me now while there is time give me your hearts Come with fasting and weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing and your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, <laughs> slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love, and he is eager to relent and not to punish. So ask yourself this morning, does apathy hinder me from living a life? that's focused on Jesus? If we want to solve the dilemma of our spiritual malaise and expose our apathy, we would do well to reflect on these questions as we look back on our day or week or month or year. Do our daily activities feel directionless? What have I set my mind on? Have I ruthlessly sought to set my mind on the things of the Spirit, essentially things that nurture my spiritual life, we have to look apathy squarely in the face and through the power of the Holy Spirit, wrestle it down. You know, one of the hardest things for struggling Christians to recognize is that the church is exactly where they need to be. But so often, they feel it isn't. When Christians find the journey hard, when they really need to be part of the church, they convince convince themselves that they should be anywhere but church. But the church is God's house, where his son Jesus is praised. And if we're struggling in our faith, we need to get ourselves back into church, into fellowship with other believers. Psalm 42 gives us a good answer. In verse four and five, the psalmist writes, my heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. And we just completed our study of Psalm 23, a psalm David wrote at a very pleasant time in his life. Thinking about the culture in America and the apathy that has recently pervaded the church, I thought about another psalm that David wrote when he was in distress and was hiding in the wilderness. And David's psalm gives great encouragement to those that are facing difficulty and hardship. I'm going to be reading from Psalm 63. that says, oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search. For you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. I lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. Because you are my helper, I sing for joy in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. And I really love these last three verses where David finishes this psalm by now speaking to his tormentors. He says, but those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They will go down into the depths of the earth. They will die by the sword and become the food of jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear to tell the truth will praise him while liars will be silenced. So despite all of his sin and the despair that he could have been swallowed up by, David knew that he was secure in God's love, and so are you. He encouraged his heart by thinking back to previous worship in the sanctuary, the place where he had gazed on God's power and glory. His testimony and all of his personal turmoil, your unfailing Love is better than life itself. David's faithfulness encourages us this morning. Sunday by Sunday, as we sing and pray and open our lives to one another, we encounter the glorious love of our Good Shepherd by His Holy Spirit. Water break. Okay, so we talked about a lot of things that may not have been pleasant to hear this morning. So now we're going to make a turn. You know, it's by unleashing the fountain of the Holy Spirit within us that we will overcome any issues in our Christian walk and regain the high ground in our culture. Beginning with Pentecost, as we read in Acts 2, The Holy Spirit has worked in successive waves or outpourings throughout history to advance the kingdom of God. And it is often profitable to look back at the past to see that times of great challenges have been overcome through faith and prayer and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, some of you may be familiar, but I want to introduce you to the Moravians and their great awakening, which is considered one of the most profound outpourings of the Holy Spirit in all of church history. Fleeing from imprisonment and torture during the Catholic Inquisition in Bohemia, which is modern-day Czech Republic, the Moravians found refuge in Saxony, which is modern-day Germany, where Count Zinzendorf, a young Christian nobleman offered them asylum on his estate. And among those who came were members of the Bohemian Brethren who had been living a persecuted life as an underground remnant in Moravia for nearly a hundred years. And Count Zinzendorf, a young man in his twenties, had given himself utterly to Christ, adopting as his motto, I have one passion, it is Jesus, Jesus only. And Zinzendorf frequently encouraged prayer for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So in 1722, the refugees established a new village called Hernhut and it was on the Zinzendorf estate. And the town initially grew steadily but major religious disagreements emerged and by 1727, the community was divided into warring factions. And on August 13th, 1727, the community underwent a dramatic transformation when the inhabitants of Hernhut learned to love one another following an experience which they attributed to a visitation of the Holy Spirit similar to that recorded in the Bible on the day of Pentecost. A Moravian historian wrote, God's church history abounds in records of special outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And verily, August 13th, 1727 was a mighty day of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We saw the hand of God in his wonders, and we were all under the cloud of our fathers baptized with their spirit. And the Holy Spirit came upon us, and in those days, great signs and wonders took place in our midst, and a great hunger after the word of God took possession of us, so that we had to have three services every day. And everyone desired above everything else that the Holy Spirit might have full control. Self-love and self-will, as well as all disobedience, disappeared in their church and an overwhelming flood of grace swept us all out into the great ocean of divine love. Now, exactly what happened that Wednesday, August 13th, 1727, in the specially called communion service at Hearn Hut, none of the participants could fully describe. But they left the house of, that, of God that day, hardly knowing whether they belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven. Count Zinzendorf gave the following account of a number of years afterward to a British audience. He said we needed to come to the communion with a sense of the loving nearness of the Savior. We were assembled for communion and we were all dissatisfied with ourselves. We had quit judging each other because we had become convinced each one of his lack of worth in the sight of God. And each felt himself at this communion to be in view of the noble countenance of the Savior. It was a sense of the nearness of Christ bestowed in a single moment upon all the members that were present. Now one result of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was known as the hourly intercession. Now there are 168 one-hour time slots in a week. And the Moravians filled all 168 time slots with two to three people per hour for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, two to three people were always praying in this place of prayer. And this is going to astonish you. This unbroken chain of prayer went on for a hundred and ten years. Can you imagine the supernatural power that was unleashed by a group intentionally praying uninterrupted for a hundred and ten years? This small community of 300 believers became so overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit that they desired to share the gospel with the rest of the world. And the Moravian missionaries became the first large-scale Protestant missionary movement. The Moravians had learned that the secret of loving the souls of men was found in loving the Savior of men. The Moravians' passion for souls was surpassed only by their passion for the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. By 1791, 65 years after the commencement of that prayer vigil, the small Moravian community had sent over 300 missionaries to the ends of the earth. And it was said as a result of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on 300 souls, the small church in 20 years called into being more missions than the entire evangelical church has done in two centuries. And that's not the end of the story. The Moravians had a direct influence on the establishment of the Methodist movement, which was founded by John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. And George Whitfield and the Wesley's, all of whom spread the gospel across England and America, were greatly influenced in their beliefs by the Moravians. So what does this story mean to us this morning in the face of a challenging culture and an apathetic church? I think we find the answer, as did the Moravians, as King David did, through the power of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. I think you are probably like me, and that hearing this story causes us to desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit just like the Moravians were. I can think of only one word to describe the Moravians. They were zealous. And isn't being zealous the antidote for apathy? And shouldn't we all desire to experience that same zeal today? Romans 12, in the ESV says, do not be slothful, slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And in Titus 2, verse 14, in the New King James Version, it says, Our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zeal is a feeling deep inside someone that leads to action. Zeal is about being awake to God, aware of his presence and calling. And I like to think that a Christian who is zealous for God is a Christian that is on fire for Jesus. Zealous for God means being passionate about the word of God. Zealous for God means being hungry for the presence of God. And zealous for God means being bold, and proclaiming the name of God. So as it was with the Moravians, a life that is transformed by God's grace, obedient to his word, and passionate in pursuit of his love is a powerful testimony. And this kind of zeal can ultimately point others to Christ. How can you tell if someone is zealous for the Lord. It isn't that their hair is on fire or they're shouting or jumping around, but you can see it in their mannerisms, in their facial expressions. You can see it in their uh, warm smile, in their focused eyes, in their open arms, in their helping hands, in their compassionate voice, in their friendliness and openness, in their loving response, and in their sharing of the gospel. And their focus is on others, not on themselves. In essence, they exhibit the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. These are the behaviors we should all strive for through the power of the Holy Spirit being on fire for the lord may seem strange to the world but can be used mightily by god for his kingdom now it is clear from history that the moravian outpouring was the result of fervent prayer and today god is ready to hear our prayers in ezekiel 36 the prophet exclaimed God is ready to hear Israel's prayers and to increase their numbers like a flock. What really encourages me about the great awakening with the Moravians is it appears at this moment that the Holy Spirit is up to something in America as we are seeing outpourings of the Holy Spirit Recently, we probably all of you heard about the outpouring at Asbury University, and it seems to be spreading. Evangelist Nick Hall said he believes it's not over, it's just starting. Flames of the Holy Spirit continue to spread across the nation as new reports emerge of young people answering the gospel's call. Thousands of Christians gathered for two weeks of impromptu, spirit-led worship, prayer, and repentance at Asbury University. And the outpouring has since touched the hearts and minds of young people on both Christian and secular university campuses and churches and at youth events. At a recent meeting at Purdue University, 300 students came to join the Collegiate Day of Prayer Simucast from Asbury. And the students brought in a pool for what they thought would be three baptisms. And instead, 21 people came forward to be baptized. And like Hall, many people who visited Asbury felt rejuvenated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. They understood the urgency that this outpouring that we're seeing is not meant to die, it's meant to spread. God is at work, Hall exclaimed, and when God is at work, you just have to stay in tune with the Spirit and just keep your faith up and say, God, would you move? Would you have your way? Would you do what only you can do? Now, I believe this is a revival moment, Hall said, and I think everywhere that people are hungry, God is willing to move. And you've probably heard that this Jesus Revolution movie is seeing impromptu worship and praise outside of theaters. That's going to be the last one. So how do we close this morning's teaching? We began by looking at the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of a Christian. And then we considered the culture and the apathetic attitudes that are quenching the work of the Holy Spirit. And then we considered the great Moravian awakening and how prayer is powerful beyond our own understanding. And then we identified zeal for God as a desired attitude. And now we are witnessing the power of prayer and outpourings of the Holy Spirit across America. And isn't it overwhelming? that a Moravian church of 300 people literally changed the world for Christ. And is that what we should be aiming for at Renew Church. To have an anointing of the Holy Spirit, the likes of which we have never experienced, that through fervent prayer, we are transformed. You know, through the history of the advancement of the gospel, the role of Christians has been to pray for these waves of outpourings and to be a part of them as the Holy Spirit causes us to engage in them. And while these waves of the Holy Spirit come at God's initiative, we do have a role in him sending these waves. He has directed that we cooperate with him by means of prayer. And this is modeled for us in the book of Acts where each wave of the Holy Spirit was preceded by the work of earnest prayer. I spoke this morning about how the world seems to be falling away from God's will and how once active Christians are struggling with apathy toward the church. This is not so different than the bewilderment among those at Pentecost before the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And it is not so different than the struggles the Moravians were having before the Holy Spirit descended on them. And maybe, this may be, great outpourings of the Holy Spirit come at times when needed the most. And isn't this a great time in America? Maybe All that's needed is for Christ's church to be hungry for the Holy Spirit and the fervent prayers of a faithful church. Wouldn't it be something to end a service and be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we don't know if we're on earth or if we're in heaven? My prayer this morning is that if anyone at Renew is discouraged or is struggling with apathy that they spend time on their knees, praying for God to freshly fill them with the Holy Spirit. And as a church, that we would be zealous in our walk with Jesus. So in preparing our hearts and our minds for Easter, let us meditate on such verses as Galatians 2, verse 20, which reads, I have been crucified, With Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Let us commit ourselves to praying fervently for the Holy Spirit to overwhelm us individually and God's church corporately and may the wind of god blow upon us let's pray father god we uh, are <clears throat> so thankful for this time this morning that we can that we can just rest at your feet father and and hear from you father we pray that If there's anyone in our midst that is struggling in their faith, that, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts, Father, to connect with them and engage with them and pray for them, Father. And, Father, as these uh, outpourings of the Holy Spirit are appearing in America today, we just pray mightily that we can support these outpourings through fervent prayer, Father. And we praise you for what you're doing. And Father, we pray that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that we would be zealous for you, Father. That all we do and say in our lives would be focused on Jesus. And Father, we ask as we prepare for Easter that you would just Prepare us, prepare our hearts, and may we just focus on the reality that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the way and the truth and the life. And Father, we thank you for this morning, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.